bear fruit through your word uh, in this message today. In your name we pray, amen. On Memorial Day, uh, we took Jenya to Arlington National Cemetery. Uh, and being country bumpkins from Percival, we didn't realize that President Bush would be there to lay a wreath at the Tomb of the Unknowns. Uh, we were equally surprised after the ceremony and the departure of the President when we came upon a crowd of people gathered around <coughs> um, Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld, who was making his way to his limousine. Uh, while Shrinking Violet Jed and Make It Happen Deb stood flat-footed, Catherine grabbed Jenya by the hand and asserted her way through the crowd um, and came up behind Rumsfeld. She put her hand on his shoulder and said, Mr. Rumsfeld. He turned around, smiled broadly, and shook Jenya's hand as Catherine told him that this was our exchange student from Russia. Jenya was ecstatic. Whether you like him or not, Secretary Rumsfeld is an interesting guy. As a college senior, he was captain of the wrestling team and undefeated in his 157-pound weight class. And although he was extremely, uh, an extremely talented wrestler, his friends recount that he was deceptively strong as well, something he learned to use to his advantage. A Princeton classmate said, word got around that Rummy could do one-arm push-ups but no one knew how many. Challenged one night, Rumsfeld got down on the floor and squeezed off 50 of them right-handed. Sensing a weakness, classmate Dick Stevens threw a $5 bill on the floor and bet Rumsfeld that he couldn't do 50 more, this time left-handed. He did the 50, picked up the money, and left the room, Stevens recalls. In a manner appropriate for a leader of the armed forces, Rumsfeld has also displayed amazing strength of will as he's endured years of battering from both Democrats and Republicans, from both war protesters and Pentagon insiders, from both the press and the bloggers, as he toils at transformation of the military establishment and defends a now controversial war. Controversy aside, Rumsfeld staunchly epitomizes strength in pursuit of purpose. With the strength of Rumsfeld in mind, let's look at Paul's young protege, Timothy, who also had a mission. Some of us remember that famous vice presidential de debate between Senator Lloyd Benson and his opponent, Dale, Dan Quayle, who had been comparing himself to President Kennedy. In that famous zinger, Benson proclaimed, Senator, I served with Jack Kennedy. I knew Jack Kennedy. Jack Kennedy was a friend of mine. Senator, you are no Jack Kennedy. We can be sure that young, timid, sickly Timothy was by nature no Donald Rumsfeld. How did Paul encourage and direct this weak, young pastor? Let's hear what the Apostle Paul says in our text for today, 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 7. You can follow along with me in your Bible or in the scripture notes which are in the handout in, in your bulletin. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. 
It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. This is a passage about strength. It came at a time when exceptional strength was needed. As John Stott points out in his commentary, the situation described at the end of the previous chapter, written from a dungeon by one sentence to death, is that of the widespread defection of Paul's companions. Timothy needed strength to stand his ground in the midst of the general landslide. And we need strength today as we face our own personal fears, trials, and battering. And also as we live in a culture increasingly hostile to the gospel. Paul's description of the last three days in Timothy 2, chapter 3, or 2 Timothy chapter 3, certainly does not sound strange to our ears. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. For Timothy, the trials were real, the hostility daunting, the peer pressure intense. Paul wrote words from the Lord to strengthen Timothy. But is this letter only for Timothy? I think not. The last words of 2 Timothy are, grace be with you, and the word you is plural. You see, Paul meant this letter to be read to the entire church. Paul's words about strength are for us also. Let's think about what he says. The first thing we notice about Paul's exhortation to Timothy is that it's based on relationship. Paul calls him my child or my son. Though not a son by blood, Timothy was Paul's son in the Lord. Have you ever had a shock to your system? It happened to me as the Vietnam War drew to a close. I went from a vociferously anti-war Princeton University campus to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, the heart of the Bible Belt. It was while I was there as a young soldier that I came to Christ. The change of language alone was enough to make your head spin. In college, it's been, hell no, we won't go, and up against the wall, blankety blank. Even my college roommate and best friend affectionately called me Rotsy Pig. On the other hand, at First Baptist Church of Spring Lake, we were Brother Lindsay, or Sister Betsy, or Brother Jad. So great was my mental whiplash that I don't think I ever did fully appreciate the depth of Christian relationships in that my first Bible-believing church. So I was particularly encouraged recently to hear a snippet at the 4th of July, uh, uh, Potomac Hills 4th of July party at our house. Uh, Luzanino was uh, excited to see Morgan Cash and Brian Lance, who are regular customers of his at at Loudoun Valley Floors. And they told him that they were my neighbors and then said to him, what are you doing here? Without hesitation, uh, Lou looked back over his shoulder at about 120 folks from Potomac Hills spread out on the grass and said, well, this is my family. Uh, With a tone of, where else would I be? You see, Lou gets it. As a young Christian, he's already experienced and also comprehends the family-style relationships between believers united by common beliefs and purpose and knit together by the Spirit of God alive in their hearts. 
As Christians, we need not feel alone, for we are not alone. We are part of the family of believers, as Paul puts it in Galatians. Paul's commission to Timothy was backed up by a father-son relationship. Now, as a father, I can tell Kylie to remove an old gutter from our house carefully and methodically. However, I know that nine times out of 10, he'll wrap a rope around it, tie it to his waist, get a running start, and fling himself into space to yank it off. Carefully is not his nature. As a husband, I could tell Deb to sit tight when action is needed, but it's not her nature to sit tight. (laughs) I suppose even Mark Rist, with his gracious, elegant, powerful words, could exhort Phoebe not to dance. But many of us remember the 4th of July. (laughs) In like manner, one might think it futile for Paul to exhort exhort timid Tim to be endunimo, with its meaning of strength or empowerment, and with English uh, language descendants like dynamo and dynamite. It might be futile because strength was not Timothy's strength. Unlike Donald Rumsfeld's inborn strength, Timothy's strength had to come from without. Paul says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Timothy and all those in Christ Jesus are strengthened for their mission by grace, strengthened to withstand trials, suffering, and opposition by God's gift, his grace. In his commentary, Brian Chappell states it well. Timothy's power came from grace. Timothy, as is the case with every person in union with Christ, already had this grace. It was already in him. As the Apostle John puts it, and from his fullness, we all have received grace upon grace. Grace was heaped upon grace in Timothy's life. It could never be depleted. Grace is so much a part of those who are in Christ that the Apostle James would remark, but he gives us more grace. More grace was always there for Timothy like a poised pitcher ready at the slightest nudge to pour grace upon him. Will we ever forget grace at Potomac Hills? Meganoito. Say it with me. Meganoito. One more time. Meganoito. May it never be. May it never be that Potomac Hills forgets about grace. Grace is our watchword because grace is fundamental in the nature of God and grace is the heart of the gospel. What is grace? It is God's favor, undeserved, but given to us. The imprint of grace is evident everywhere in scripture. Last week, Dave Crenshaw covered a wonderful grace passage. Listen to Paul's meditation on grace from chapter one. God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which has now been manifested through the appearing appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This passage is awesome in the old unadulterated sense. It takes my breath away. 
Grace is awesome news. The gospel gives me goosebumps. Can we ever tire of grace? Let's step through this passage again, which I'll put up on the screen. I think. There we go. God saved us. We are rescued from a fate worse than death. Saved from eternal, forever, gruesome, miserable agony that our sin deserves. Nor are we merely rescued from the abyss. We are called to the blessings of holy, sweet, excellent, exuberant, joyful purity. Did we deserve this favor, even one iota? Me ganoito. May it never be. Our salvation is not because of our works, but because of God's purpose and God's own grace. How is this made possible? He gave us Christ Jesus. He sacrificed his only son. Jesus was pierced for our sins. Christ agonized on a wretched cross, became a curse and sin for us. Christ Jesus, the innocent, was forsaken and endured the all-consuming wrath of his own beloved Father. He loved us that much. When was this all put in place? This was God's purpose before the ages began. Those in Christ have been safe in his grip from everlasting to everlasting because everyone who is um, uh, because one who is omnipotent has purposed it. How can we know this? It has been manifested. That means made completely, clearly, copiously obvious by the appearance of the Savior, Christ Jesus. What did Christ abolish? The sentence of death, the grip of death, the fear of death, the sting of death, the horror of death, the finality of death. For the believer, Christ abolished death. What's our end in the gospel? Life, life that is true life. Life indeed and life forever. Life eternal with the author of this grace. Praise to the God of grace. This is grace, this is the gospel. If you don't know this Christ already, I pray that he will make this, his grace clear to you today and that you will turn from sin and put your faith in Jesus. As the Apostle John said 2,000 years ago, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I exhort you, believe in him, don't wait, trust in him now, Entrust your life to him. Paul did, Timothy did. May the Lord grant you this as well. Never forgetting the gospel of grace, let's continue with verse three. The strength God gives us is for a purpose. God does not just save us, he gives our life meaning because God has a purpose for us. As Paul says in Ephesians 
We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has a plan for our lives, a good and perfect plan. Thanks, Deb. In verse two, Paul outlines his plan for Timothy. It is also a plan for us. He says, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. We are to pass the gospel message on. My mother was the most loving, gracious, considerate person I think I've ever met. She did things that could never begin to be repaid. And whenever somebody asked how they could repay her, she always said, oh, just pass it on. Whenever I do something kind or gracious for someone, I rejoice that I'm able to pass on the grace that my mom, and ultimately the Lord, through my mom, showed to me. What a privilege that the Lord gives us to pass on the fruit of this grace. But as wonderful as it is to pass along good deeds and goodwill, verse two conveys an awful lot more. Paul's commission to Timothy was much more systematic. He tells Timothy to pass along what you have heard from me, that he must entrust it to faithful men, and that these men must be able to teach others also. I'd like to try an experiment. Uh, I'd like to ask my Sunday school class from this year to come on down to the front for just a minute. Don't be shy, where's, where's Catherine? Oh, they ducked out on me. <laughs> okay, all right. Jesse, come on over here. And Chloe, you can stand next to her. And Mary Grace, you stand next to her. Oh, oh, who's going first? You gonna go first? Okay, Jesse, you're gonna be last, right? Okay. I'm gonna whisper something to Chloe and she's gonna say it to Mary Grace, and Mary Grace is gonna, gonna tell Jesse, okay? Now don't worry if you don't get it exactly right, but let's see if you can say this. The doctrine of this high mystery of predestination. Okay, what, what, do you, what do you think it was, Jesse? She didn't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you guys can sit down, great, good job. <laughs> what a great class. <laughs> there are a lot more of them, but some I think are in the nursery and some are away and, uh, and some may have chickened out. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> uh, from the message we just heard, uh, how many in the congregation understood what I said to, uh, uh, to Chloe at first? Anybody? I don't think so. Um, I was hoping we'd get something garbled out, but uh, we didn't get anything out. And uh, uh, what I said was, the doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care. <laughs> <coughs> Paul wanted the, the truth of the gospel passed from generation to generation. He knew that it must be his words as inspired by the Spirit of God. It must be accurately passed on or entrusted. That's why the church has passed the scriptures on in written form. 
It must be passed on not through the unstable or the careless or even the most wonderful and intelligent Sunday school class in the whole wide world. It had to be entrusted to faithful men who were capable of teaching the message to others who also could in turn continue to pass along the truth. And if this letter is Paul's last will and testament, as it is sometimes called, then his dying wish might be stated like this, pass on the true gospel. Paul's not shy about this message either. Second Timothy is a short letter, just 83 verses, 1,675 words, less than a third of this sermon. Yet by my count, even if we exclude today's passage, Paul conveys the past the true gospel message at least 13 times. He wanted Timothy and us to get the message straight. If you don't believe me, here goes. 1.8, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Verse, or chapter one, verse 13. Follow the pattern of sound words that you heard from me. 1.14, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. 2.8, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. 2.14, remind them of these things. 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. 2.24, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach. 3.10, you, however, have followed my teaching. 3.14, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe. 3.15, from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. 3.16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. 4.2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. 4.17, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed. God has not been haphazard in ensuring that the gospel truth is passed on from generation to generation. He put it on Paul's heart and he's preserved the scriptures through the ages. In the attaboys department, I'd just like to say how much I appreciate Dave Silvernail's practical application of Paul's charge. He takes care to entrust the gospel to faithful men who will be able to teach others. For every elder and deacon candidate, Dave conducts thorough and excellent officer training over the course of many, many months, culminating in a detailed written and oral examination before the session. That way he and the rest of the session get to know well those who will be entrusted with the gospel. And these men learn the doctrines of our faith and demonstrate their faithfulness. It's a blessing and a privilege to be a part of a church with men who are committed to Paul's dying wish to pass on the true gospel. Gospel proclamation is a noble task and a daunting one because it's always done in the context of persecution and suffering. Suffering for the gospel is a constant theme in 2 Timothy also. As Paul tells us in chapter three, 
All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Today's passage emphasizes this truth in verse three and illustrates it with a word picture. Paul says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. I think we all have some sense of the sacrifice and suffering that our troops in Iraq face on a daily basis. Danger, fear, ceaseless tension, separation from family, discomforts of every kind, loss of companions, pain, injury, and death. Not that this is a modern phenomenon either. In his book, 1776, uh, about the most difficult days of the Revolutionary War, David McCullough describes the hardships of a soldier. Work on defenses went on steadily, the troops toiling with picks and shovels all in all weather, sometimes working through the night when the heat of the day was too severe. Typhus, characterized by high fever, severe headaches, and delirium, was carried by lice and fleas, which were the, a plague uh, amid the army. One soldier recorded, uh, recorded seeing a dead body so covered with lice that it was thought the lice alone had killed the man. Typhoid fever, also characterized by raging fever, rash, vomiting, diarrhea, and excruciating abdominal pain was caused by contaminated food or water, usually the result of too little separation between sewage and drinking water. McCullough goes on to, with an eyewitness account from the Battle of Bunker Hill. Everywhere the greatest terror and confusion seemed to prevail. The boy started running along the road that led to the battle, past wagons carrying more casualties and wounded men struggling back to Cambridge on foot. Terrified, he wished he had never enlisted. I could positively feel the hair stand on end. When Paul tells us, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus, he is giving us good advice about how to deal with the suffering that we will all inevitably uh, come our way. He tells us to share in suffering or literally suffer bad with. Here he's really calling us once again to fall back on our relationships with other believers. Suffering is more bearable when we endure it together with others. My army days were served during peacetime, but even in peacetime, military service has its share of hardships. In boot camp, they blasted us out of bed uh, with a bugle at five. We did push-ups, marched, hiked, and ran until our feet were blistered and our bodies wasted. We sweated, starved, and slithered through the dirt. Big, ugly, nasty Neanderthal drill sergeants screamed in our faces as we struggled miserably to do their bidding. And worst of all, when all the world had long hair, they shaved us bald. But I do not dwell on, uh, but when I, what I, but what I do dwell on when I remember those days at Fort Indian Town Gap, I remember deep friendships with uh, hillbillies from Kentucky, uh, wise guys with Brooklyn accents, and farm boys with size 40 biceps and size four hats. <clears throat> guys I would not have chosen myself became dear comrades as we suffered together as soldiers. In like manner, God gives us Christian relationships, brothers and sisters in Christ, to encourage and support one another through suffering, persecution, and the trials of life. As a rule, God does not require us to suffer hardship alone. Our Christian comrades in arms 
our, fe our fellow Christian soldiers are there with us, encouraging us in the midst of trial. But even if dear friends and fellow believers should desert us, as Paul's did, verse three reminds us that we are soldiers of Christ Jesus, a commander who will never abandon us. As the scripture says, he will never leave us or forsake us. And our commander calls us to remember that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Furthermore, this commander not only strengthens us to endure hardship, but also increases our love for him, deepens our relationship with him, and builds us up through these very times of testing. I think that's why our Lord's own brother James opens his letter with these words. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. God turns even our trials to pure joy by his grace. So let's summarize. We are to be strengthened by grace, pass on the true gospel, and share in suffering as good soldiers of Christ. As my brother Mark Rist is accustomed to say, what does that look like in your life? Paul shows us in the next three verses with three more word pictures. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. In verse four, Paul sticks to the military theme. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. On Thursday, some of us had the privilege to attend Jan Crenshaw's retirement from the Coast Guard. Wow, did they love Jan. <laughs> Jan's passion for her mission and her devotion to her Coast Guard leaders was extolled by speaker after speaker. Jan has borne good fruit. It has been a job well done, and her master chief, lieutenant, and commander know it. It was particularly moving after she received accolades for her devotion uh, from her military commanders to hear Jan lay all the credit for her achievements at the feet of her Lord Jesus Christ, who had saved her and by his grace enabled her to accomplish whatever she had. On two levels, Jan lived out Paul's illustration. Not only has she been a Coast Guardsman leaving worldly entanglements behind because of her aim to please the one who enlisted her, but out of her love for her Lord Jesus and thankfulness for his grace, she rendered godly service in order to please the one who had enlisted her in his eternal kingdom. We too, as Jan has done, need to remember to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, with the single-minded purpose of a soldier aiming to please his commander. If we know our Lord, we will love him. If we love our Lord, pleasing him is our delight. Our love for the Lord is certainly a source of strength. Verse five is about honor and glory. It is also about righteousness and playing by the rules. In God's economy, the two are associated. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The crown, whether of gold and jewels, 
for a king or the simple laurel wreath placed on the head of an Olympic victor was the mark of glory. How easy it is to have the glory of our victories tarnished by breaking the rules. Just ask Pete Rose, banned from baseball for life and denied the Hall of Fame for betting on ball games. And the crown of glory we seek is even more important. Paul says, do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Our Lord's brother said, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Our Christian walk is motivated by love. It seeks to glorify Christ by righteous life. It plays by the rules. The last word picture in verse six is about the rewards of a life fruitful for Christ. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Sometimes as, uh, sometimes as we live the Christian life, we forget this. When I think of this farmer who Paul describes with a word for toiling, laboring, and growing weary, the picture resonates with me. We have a garden that had fallen into disrepair. Catherine and Johanna decided to take it on. I have to admit that I did not have high expectations for their success. But each day for weeks and weeks, they have tilled and dug and planted and hauled mulch and hoses and fertilizer and watered and weeded and staked up the vines. They installed a, an electric fence to keep the deer out and dusted for beetles. And even while Johanna has been away at Oxford for a couple of weeks, every day I've seen Catherine hunched over in the blazing sun toiling in her garden. And guess what? I was wrong. That weed-ridden wasteland has been transformed into a showplace of neatly mulched rows of healthy green plants, beans, tomatoes, cucumbers, peppers, broccoli, cauliflower, and melons and zinnias and portulaca and sunflowers adorn its borders. The girls did not make the garden grow, only the Lord can do that. But the garden would not be there without their efforts either. God is producing good fruit, abundant fruit through their efforts. They deserve the first fruits of their harvest. God also bears spiritual fruit through the agency of his people. He strengthens them for their spiritual toil of passing on the true gospel through the hope of his reward. God is righteous and just. He sees our hard work. And although we must be patient in waiting for the proper time, Paul says the hardworking farmer ought to have the first share of the crops. In the final analysis, our sovereign Lord will hardly let what ought to happen fall by the wayside. In Galatians 6, 9, Paul encourages us with the words, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Thursday night, Catherine harvested her first cucumbers. One was already nine inches long. Now, I suppose I could cut this sermon short by merely repeating the last verse of our passage. 
Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Or as it says in the message, which is Dave Silvernail's favorite uh, Bible paraphrase, think it over. God will make it all plain. But as a practical exercise in suffering for you, let me continue. <clears throat> verse seven is my favorite verse today. Um, I'm not fast at it. I'm not the most adept at it or able to devote a lot of time to it. But my favorite thing to do is to think. I'm sure that this, is, that this preference is shared by a limited segment of the population. What's more, our society makes thinking almost impossible. I loved a short editorial from the New York Times that my brother sent to me, uh, written by Carolyn Curio. It's entitled, Let's I Am As You Read This. She says, I have the television turned to a news channel as I write this. My voicemail box is spilling its contents over the speakerphone and I pause occasionally to flip screens on my computer to check email messages. Still, something feels missing. I think of the executive who positioned, positioned his office computer above a treadmill so he could walk constantly, keeping fit as he ran a business. Studies show that people may pack the equivalent of 31 hours of activities into a 24-hour day by doing several things at once. We think of America as, sleep -deprived, as a sleep-deprived nation, but we are becoming deep thought-deprived too. A closed door does not stop interruptions because we are packing the weapons that can shatter concentration or quiet contemplation. Our fingers are always on a button. Multitasking did not begin with computers, cell phones, or other wireless technology, of course. Before those gadgets came along, the TV tray encouraged people to choose entertainment or the evening news over the dinner table and conversation. Radios were put in homes, then cars, helping to fill the dead air that can accompany housework and long rides. We seem afraid to be alone with our thoughts. I have, been I have been a determined multitasker for as long as I can remember, insisting on doing my homework before the television. It did not seem to hurt my grades, but I will never, forget, but I will never know. Now I am loath to completely shut off connectors to those outside my immediate purview. I might miss something, or someone might miss me, and that would be disastrous, wouldn't it? Curiel has a point. Our minds are occupied every waking minute, but rarely, if ever, with deep, uninterrupted, synthesizing, meditative thought. Let me urge you. Let me encourage you. Let me give you permission to stop and think. As Ravi Zacharias says in his Moses fashion, let my people think. Let's break away from the bricks and straw bondage to thoughtlessness imposed by the pharaohs of TV, cell phone, and 24-7-ness. Come away to a land of milk and honey and thinking together with the pharaoh in the pulpit today. Here's what God's word tells us to think on in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in a seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law he meditates day and night. 
He is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Let us meditate on the law of the Lord, the Bible. The one who does so flourishes like a tree on the bank of a river in the desert. The tree by a river is a picture of strength. We can be that strong tree by making time, delighting in, and meditating on the scriptures. Finally, I'm glad that Paul lifts the burden from the one preaching, the one teaching, even the one mulling over the word of God. Our job is to be faithful in giving a thoughtful hearing to Paul's letters and the other scriptures. When we are faithful to do so, God will give us the understanding and all the strength we need to pass on the true gospel. So how do we apply lessons and strength from 2 Timothy? If you'd like to, there are six application ideas in the bulletin which relate to our passage today. Take a look at them, find one that resonates with you, and try it out. It's time to close. This time I will close with verse seven. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. And all God's people, strengthened by the gospel, said, Amen.